We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who love America. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week as I introduce you to a hero, a freedom fighter, a veteran, a warrior, an immigrant, and other inspiring Americans living their American dreams with one common thread. They love America. In this podcast, we talk about the hard things, emotional and physical scars, PTSD, real challenges, and how they not only weathered the storms, but rose above the clouds to become stronger and better. Be assured, we laugh too. What is life without a bit of humor? These stories confirm what our founding fathers believed. America is truly a special place for a special people, and you are part of this great story. We the people, our American story is your podcast. Find yourself in this space every week, a place where American values are cherished and treasured, a place where we celebrate each other, a place you belong. On last week's episode, I introduced you to Nick. Nick had a very challenging childhood, including his father being put into jail several times because of illegal activities with drugs, Nick quitting school to make money for himself, and finally the day that he joined Airborne School. This is Nick's American Story, Part 2. Tell me what that was like to jump out of an airplane for the first time, because you're not too keen on heights. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And they lead up to it very well. You know, you do, you jump off of a platform first and then you jump off of a higher platform and then you do the swing training, right? A swing trainer where they basically hook you up to a zip line and then they send you off of like a 25, 30 foot tower. And then a guy has a rope he can pull. You don't know when he's going to pull it. You have no idea. So as soon as he pulls it, you got you to gotta do your little, uh, they call it a PLF, a parachute landing fall. Basically, you just turn into an egg. You try not to break your hip. And so for me, for my class in airborne school, week two is supposed to be what they call, or week three is supposed to be what they call tower week. And they have the tower. So they hook you up to a parachute. You're already hooked up. And then they raise you up in the crane, like three or 400 feet in the air. The parachute is already, it's already aired. You know, it's already stretched out. And they release it. So it just goes, and then you float down. And then, so you do that a couple of times before you get to jump out of an airplane. So it gives you a sense, you know, before you're up at like 1300 feet. But for me, of course, luck of the draw, the tower week, they had to cancel for our class because of the high winds. I was unable to get that mid-level buffer zone for, for like your your psyche. So we I went straight from the zip, the uh, the swing trainer right to jumping out of an airplane and so I didn't get that in between and I don't know if it helps or not I mean part of me thinks wow you, you got off easy you didn't have to do the swing trick you didn't have to do the the tower did your, did your heart <laughs> feel like it was going to beat out of its chest that day oh yeah yeah it was absolutely insane each class has has what's called a stick and each stick is is your row of guys right and each each stick has about I want to say like 20 guys or something. So so it goes from where the aircraft opens, you know, where the first guy is looking out all the way back to the end of the airplane where nobody can see anything. And I was the second guy. It's because of my last name. It starts with a C. So it was, it was like a guy with a B and then a guy with a C, which is me. 
I'm the second guy. And they tell you, try not to look down before you jump out the first time because a lot of guys get vertigo and they get sick. The first thing you do is, you know, they open the door and I'm like, yeah. not look out the window. You know, you just can't that's not the, do it. That's the first thing you're going to do when they tell you not to do it, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's May in Fort Benning, Georgia. It's hot. It's so hot down there. And we're inside of a C-130. It's hot in there. And I've got, you know, 100 pounds of gear on. It's so uncomfortable. So at this point, I, I, I'm, I'm scared to death. But I'm like, I have to pee. I have to pee so bad. They have you in the harness. And I think this is part of the psychological thing. They make you wait in the hangar. And I'm not even lying. The benches, they're like this way. You've got all this gear on and you're like half a cheek trying to get comfortable. And, you know, they're, they're trying to break guys. They're trying to see who can handle this stuff. And it's just part of the training. By the time you actually get out on the tarmac, they load you up on the airplane, you get up there, they're circling around, they're banking, they're doing all this, you know, just to get everybody riled up, basically. It's like shaking the hornet's nest. Finally, okay, we're going to go, like, five minutes, and everybody gets up, and, like, you're like, oh, my God, 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 oh, my God. This is going to happen right now. I'm shaking. I'm shaking so bad, man, like. I don't know. I don't even, I can't even really describe the feeling because there's, there's nothing else like it. There really is nothing else like it. I've had some close calls in my life where, you know, water skiing or hiking where I thought, oh man, that could have been it, you know, like, whoo, that was a close one. But nothing like this. You're literally like, I'm about to jump out of an airplane and the class before us. So while we were in, the week one, which is ground week, where they make you run everywhere. You run, run to and from the chow hall. If so you got to run, eat, and then run back. Uh, during that class, the class ahead of us had a jumper. Their parachute didn't deploy, okay. and they burned right in, and they they perished. They did not make it. So I'm like, is it one a class? Is it how many? What are the odds here? What are we looking at? You know, and everybody was talking about it. It was a lieutenant and she had mm-hmm. jumped out too early before handing her static line to the jump master and it went across her neck and she she was rendered unconscious and her mane didn't open and she wasn't able to pull her reserve. Oh. So they think she was unconscious, unconscious when she hit the ground. So thankfully, she hopefully wasn't experiencing that. But for the other 300 guys in the class that were getting ready to do this, it was it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And they kept mentioning it, like at morning formations. Well, we know so and so this happens, and blah blah blah. It's like, oh my gosh, man! They keep they keep mentioning it. And and just going back a step, when I was in basic, towards the end, right right before we were going to qualify for our our marksmanship badge, we had the chaplain bring us out to the courtyard, and it was very weird, very strange. He he got us all in a circle. He's like, listen, guys, you may or may have not heard. We had not heard. But one of the soldiers that was qualifying on, on the, the range crawled up on the sandbag in front of his rifle and took his own life. What? In basic? Yeah. In basic training, yeah. And again, this was the class right ahead of us. Same thing as the airborne situation. And this was like a week before we were going to go and qualify. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, why? I'm like, why? Like, why, why, why? Like, What's going on in that stuff? And the guy had kids and everything. And it was just this terrible situation. And it still crosses my mind sometimes, you know. I didn't know the guy because he was in a different class. But 
and you almost wish they wouldn't have told you. It's like, what is, what are we gaining by <laughs> by telling us this? And so here I am again in airport school, getting ready to jump. And again, here we are, where someone has just died the week before or whatever. And I'm going to do the same thing. It's different, obviously, you know, with the gun range situation, but still it's it's weighing very heavily on everybody's minds. And everybody is so tense, so anxious. And all and at the same time, there's a war going on. And like every single one of us knew, and they would they would always mention it to us, whether it was our drill instructors or our airborne sergeants, hey, at some point this training is going to end, okay? And you're gonna have to leave here. And if you think this is hard, just wait till you get where you're going. You know what I mean? Because you are going down range. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You're going, most of you're going to the front line. That's why you signed up. That's why we're training you the way we are. It was very hard to show any weakness or emotion because you knew everybody was going through it. You could see it on everybody's face. It was, you know, it was rough. And towards the end, the drill instructors really tried to bond with us more. And you could tell that they knew that a lot of us were not going to make it through the war, you know, and, and that's, that's the truth. You know, that's the truth. Um, those are the numbers, you know, those are the statistics, whether you're going to get very terribly wounded, maimed, or you're going to lose the guy next to you, or it's going to be you yourself. You know, you just don't know, but it really started to become much realer at the end of basic training. And then you got a little bit more lax during airborne school, but then towards the end, on that first jump, right before you're jumping and all that's going through your mind is that lieutenant that in my mind i'm like oh my god what's going to happen if that happens to me and i can't pull my reserve you know wh what am i going to do you know and then i'm thinking about my mom i'm thinking about my dad and my friends and it's like go green light go and i'm the second guy out before you can even think you're just out are you exhilarated when you jump or are you scared to death or both. I was, I was very scared. I was very scared. I was like upside down, and, and I, I'm not a I'm not a big guy, and I was much smaller back then because I was just running everywhere. I was I was in ex, I was in extremely good shape, you know, because I was just running everywhere. All I was doing was eating and running everywhere. When I came out of the thing, I'm like 140 pounds or whatever. Yeah, I'm like 180 pounds now. It's like but when I was in the army, I was I was much smaller. Can I ask how yeah. tall you are? Right around six feet. And you yeah. were 140 pounds. Yeah, probably 140, 145 oh uh, while, I, while I was doing all my training. Yeah. yeah. You were a stick. Oh, yeah. You should see pictures. It's, I look like a, one of those ultra marathon runners. <laughs> Eating you enough? Oh, my word. I ate like a horse. I mean, I, I still eat like a horse, uh, but my, metab my metabolism is starting to catch up with me now. So. No, I have a son like that. He's 17 and he can't put on weight to save his life. How so, do you feel then when you touch the ground? Um, it was great. Uh, like I said, I had to go to the bathroom really bad. So, <laughs> so you enjoyed I, the victory uh, for about two seconds. And, then <laughs> yeah. and I'll say this, I've never, I never told anybody outside this, my army community, but I didn't wait till I made it off of the uh, the landing zone. I went ahead and took care of business right then and there. And then, and then I went ahead and ran. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. You did. <laughs> was it easier yeah. to jump out after that? Or was there still a great deal of fear? No, no. For me, I thought it was much easier. Um, 
obviously the odds of something happening to you increase the more you do it. But I thought it's only four more times, you know, you do five times, you do three um, non-combat jumps, which is just a light load. You do one combat jump, which is a very heavy load. And then you do a night jump. Mm. Uh, but, but luckily our night jump was with a light load. Sometimes they'll do a combat load, but this time they didn't. I got lucky on that one. Yeah, so when I hit the ground, you know, I was very lucky, very fortunate. I felt good, you know, and then I was, I was excited during the last jump. The first four were, were all scary, but the last one, I knew this was my last jump until at least I get to my unit. And then technically you only have to jump twice a year to stay qualified. And all of our airborne sergeants told us that they go, unless you go to brag, you're probably only going to jump twice a year just to stay qualified because there's really no need to waste all that money and resources to have you guys jumping because we haven't done a combat jump since Iraq in 2003. Really? And, yeah. And, and that's to this day, that's still the last combat wow. jump. Yeah, yeah. And that was my unit. That was my unit that did it. I completed airborne school and I was able to go home back to Washington for a week and a half before I shipped out to Germany. That's where my orders were, or to go to Germany, right? To hang out in Germany. And then from there, I was to report to the 173rd Airborne Brigade Detachment in Bonnberg, Germany. I headed to Germany. Can you lead us up to the day of your traumatic injury? Yes. Yeah. So after getting to Europe and training in Italy and Germany, the army changed their minds as they often do. When we got to Germany, they said, well, we need like 16 guys to go down to Italy, the the first battalion, the 503rd, which was the main uh, unit. It was a brigade. It was the main brigade for the 173rd. And we didn't know it at the time, but the reason they needed guys was because they had lost guys from the last deployment in Iraq. They needed to get back to 75% deployable for training purposes before they can do another rotation or whatever. But we didn't know that at the time. You know, you're just a a young soldier. And so we're like, oh, cool, Italy. You know, uh, who, who wants to go to Italy? Because there were probably about 60 of us in Hanau. And me and eight, me and seven guys, there was eight of us, that were from my basic and airborne school. We all did the training together. We raised our hands and they took all eight of us together, which was amazing. So we got to stay together. They changed our orders and we went to Italy. I was stationed in Vicenza, Italy for a year. We traded training times in between Germany and Italy, depending on what we were doing. Four months before our deployment, we got orders for Iraq, right? One month before we leave, the army changes their mind again. And they're going to send us to Afghanistan instead now to take over for the 10th Mountain Tenth uh, Mountain Division, which is, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the 10th Mountain. They're a huge unit. Um, and they'd already done like four rotations in Afghanistan. They're a big presence over there. And it was weird because getting ready for Iraq, I did language training. I was supposed to be my squad's interpreter for a bit training is what they call it. I learned 
Arabic for like six or seven months, basic Arabic. And a month before we leave, oh, we're not going to Iraq anymore. You're going to Afghanistan. They don't speak Arabic in Afghanistan. So all that training I did was just completely out the window, useless, never got to use it once. That sounds about right. Yeah. So here we are headed to Afghanistan and we knew exactly where we were going. We were going to the, it's called Nuristan. It's it's in the Nuristan province. And the area we were going to was called Gower Ditch. And it is about mm, the border, the border from Afghanistan and Pakistan isn't very defined because it's way up in the mountain. There's snow up. I mean, like the, the area that we were is adjacent to a national park in Afghanistan where they filmed part of that snow leopard documentary, like back in the seventies for national geographic. So like, that's where we were like way up in the mountains. And our job was to monitor the border in between Afghanistan and Pakistan. We were just up there basically just keeping an eye on the locals, making sure that they weren't trying to strong arm the local villages, you know, because the Taliban at the time, I don't know how they are now, but they were very savage and uh, they would exploit families and, you know, hold families for ransom to get soldiers that work for the Afghan National Army to do bad things and, and try to hurt us and give them information and stuff. And initially, that's what ended up getting us in trouble. Uh, I believe the day that we got hurt, and this is this is just life in the army as a light infantry unit. We normally don't roll around in vehicles. You know, airborne guys are used to being behind enemy lines on foot, bringing everything they need with them. So most of the training we did was on foot, in small groups and stuff. And so when we got to Afghanistan, Tenth Mountain hated walking. They were in up armored Humvees. Here you go, guys. You're gonna be ro- you're gonna be rolling in a convoy. And my commander wasn't happy about it. Our battalion commander wasn't happy about it. But that's that's just the way that it goes. You know, it's, there's always somebody higher that says, "Too bad. That's the way that it's gonna go. You just gotta work with what you got." So we started rolling up and down the same road every single day from our little camp. It was called Camp Naray, and you'll hear terms like FOB or CAMP or OP, you know, it starts at a FOB, which is, which is a, a big base. And then you have smaller FOBs and then you have CAMPs, which are usually a HESCO, like a big sandbag, you know, about six feet high. Usually if you've got two high, you can consider that a CAMP. We were like two sandbags high most of the way around. And I would say it was probably about the size of a football field, maybe a little smaller, our whole compound. And then right outside of the compound was a little, I don't know what it was, but it used to be a concrete pad. It was all busted up. It was really old. And that's where the Afghan National Army guys stayed that we worked with. But my commander didn't trust them. He made them stay outside the wall there. And so probably a good idea. The day that we ended up coming into contact. What day is this? This is June 2nd, 2007. All right. And we had been there since uh, the beginning of April. So we'd only been there for a couple of months. Not long. Yeah. Enough time. I want to say we probably ran about 20 missions. So this is probably the 18th, 19th, or 20th mission that we had done. And my job 
was my job, my, my primary weapon in the army is the M249. It's a light machine gun. And that's what I would carry normally if we were on foot, if my squad was on foot. But like I said, as soon as we got there, they changed the game on us. So they gave me a 50 cal. So I became the squad's 50 cal machine gunner on, on the lead vehicle. So I was in the very first vehicle on the 50, and we rolled with about nine vehicles. We had American 50 cal, uh, second vehicle American 240, third vehicle American 50 cal, and then we had our automatic grenade launcher on the, the fourth or fifth vehicle. We would usually have like one Jeep that was like a special operations guy, you know, the guys with the beards that don't exist, that, that don't exist. We usually, because they had a small team that stayed at our camp, they were there. And they really? were doing all these, all these other missions, you know, high value targets. And all stuff. the secret stuff. Yeah, yeah. Too. Yeah. But we looked out for each other. And so they usually would send a few guys with us at the back of our convoy, just in case. And then we would have like a vehicle with some of the Afghan guys. My first sergeant had been deployed many times before. And so he wasn't stupid. And so he knew these guys weren't to be trusted. It's just that that's the way that it is. It's the nature of how these people live, you know. Maybe this person's family is being held captive. You just don't know. So that was another dynamic that we dealt with. Maybe there's a rat or a mole within here that is secretly trying to get us hurt or whatever. And that's ultimately what ended up happening because there's no way that they would have known exactly where we were going to be and all this stuff uh, that day. They waited until, so part of the route where we were was, was right where we were at the top of the Korangal Valley. Uh, right before it goes up into the mountain. So we're at like the top of the valley and we're spread out all through the valley. But my platoon is at the very top at Camp Nuray. It's like the last spot before you head into Pakistan. And like I said, our missions were just to just roll up, up into Pakistan. Our, our seniors would make contact with the local uh, village chiefs, see if they could get any information, see if they needed any help with anything. You know, we might help clear a road for them. You guys need a couple of cases of water, rice, beans. You know, we were seriously trying to help these people any way we could because we knew that these people were putting the pinch on them and really controlling their, their way of life. I want to say that day we were going for a, a road removal. And who knows if, if that's what it really was or if it came over the net and it was bad information, you know, bad, bad intel from one of the ANA checkpoint guys, because each part of the route was a checkpoint and there would be a little, little ANA TCC, a little traffic control point, And they were supposed to monitor each vehicle that, that went to and from. And so everything was fine, but there's a part of this route and it's probably, it's not very long, maybe three quarters of a mile, but it is cut into the side of this cliff. Mm. And it's just this, it's, it's big enough for a Humvee to just go one way. So I can explain, I'm a gunner on top, right? And I'm looking over the edge, I can't see the road. And it's literally like you get up to a point on this, this part and it goes in and around a couple of times, like these hairpin corners. And you're like three, 400 feet up at some points down this severe slope into uh, the Pashtun River, which is like class five rapid. It's just this. If, if the bullets don't get you, if we fall off of this cliff, that's it, man. There's, there's no freaking way that I will survive a fall. 
And so I remember just in the back of my mind, each time we would get to that part, I would be like, oh man, because I don't do roller coasters or anything, but I could imagine it's like going up the highest part of the roller coaster and then you're there and you can't see over the, the edge, but you know it's coming. That's where they decided to ambush us that day. We were rolling up to that point I was telling you about, and it's just way up on the side of this cliff. And across the, the canyon, it's a river canyon, it's just basically cut. It's this really old, old, you know, because the land there, it's the, the mountains in Afghanistan, it's so old there. Yeah. It's just a super deep canyon that water has eroded over, you know, millions of years. And it's just like a crack that goes straight down. And it's like, so if we were level across the canyon, it's probably another 300 or 400 feet up to the top. And then the same on our side, like a sheer cliff face straight up. And so we're working our way through this spot, right? And I remember, because um, I, had, I had my headset on, and it was really hot, and it was early, and I remember feeling just like like a body high all of a sudden. I didn't feel an explosion at first. It was just like, whoa. I was like, whoa. I was like, what was that? Oh, my God, what was that? And it was an RPG that had hit underneath the back of the vehicle and had, like, lifted the vehicle up, my vehicle. And this was coming from across the, uh, the canyon, right? And at the same time, straight up above us on this cliff, they were shooting back down the convoy at the third and fourth vehicle with RPGs from this. So it was two points targeting two different positions of the convoy. They're trying to stop the convoy dead so they could just keep, you know, raining down on us. Before I can really gather my senses, boom, a second RPG hits. And I think that was probably the one that really messed us up the most because when that one hit, my hearing was gone. Um, I couldn't breathe. Uh, what, what had happened was this RPG hit the back of the, the back of the Humvee, and there's a metal slider in the back. And for some reason, that slider was open. It, it should be closed for safety purposes. The blast came straight through the cab, and I'm standing in the middle. So half my body is up, and my legs are just down here, you know, standing on this metal plate. And it just completely peppered the back of my legs with shrapnel and flames. And then, boom, we got hit with another RPG from, like, the side. And we are, like, right on the edge of this cliff, man. I mean, there's probably, I mean, it's, it's probably two feet from when you get out of it, you got out of the company to the edge of that cliff, which is not a lot of distance. And there's no fence or anything. It's crazy. And I want to say that was the third RPG. And it kind of rocks the vehicle. And at this point, it's like, Okay, we we have to get out. Nobody can see anything. Nobody can hear. Um, I look down into the cab. I, I'm kind of knocked down into the cab half halfway. I have no idea what's going on. And I looked I looked down, and Bryant he was in the rear next to me. He was burned just so bad. And he looked like a firecracker after it exploded. It was just shredded. It was just shredded. And I was like, oh my God. At this point, my vehicle has been hit with three or four RPGs. And I, I think in the official report, we ended up getting hit with five RPGs. And, you know, whether they were direct hits or within a couple of meters, these were, you know, very, very 
catastrophic explosions. Um, this is all happening very fast, or what seems like very fast. My my TC, my my tank commander, they call him the truck commander. He's riding shotgun. The the smoke, the soot, it's like the black stuff, you know, from the RPG or whatever is in there. It's it, it's just filling the air. Finally subsides a little bit, and I can see him. And the the comms are like it's like right out of a Terminator movie with electricity sparks. Every, everybody's in shock, I would imagine, to some degree. And I see him finally, and he's trying to like call the mic, and he's missing fingers, like half of his hand is blown off. And I'm like, oh, oh my god, oh my god. And I, I told you I saw Brian, and he just looks like he's shredded. I thought he was dead. Uh, finally, our driver, same situation. Um, he he was just black on the whole right side of his body because the blast came through. So everybody on the left side was heavily wounded on their right side. Everybody on the right side was heavily wounded on the left side. And I was right in the middle. So what happened was um, having the shrapnel go through the cab, through the, through the Humvee, it shredded the back of my legs. But I think the greatest injury or, or the greatest injury to my leg ended up happening because of the concussion underneath the vehicle. There's this huge metal plate and it's like a, a blast plate. And I think the blast hit so hard and at just the right spot, what happened was it basically, my calcaneus, which is your heel, basically exploded. It was, it, it was I know, yeah, it was completely gone. It was 100% calcaneus loss. So all of this is happening. And my tank commander is like, all right, we have to get out. Everybody get the hell out, get the hell out, get the hell out. Everybody starts to get out and peel off. And you remember, I'm in the first vehicle, so there's, no, there's nothing in front of us. You know, I, I don't know where the hell anything is coming from. Um, I can't hear, uh, I can't breathe. And I didn't realize that the pieces of turret, you know, the, the metal part that's protecting me had blown off a nice chunk of it. And it was lodged in the middle of my back, about an eighth, an eighth of an inch next to my spine. And it had me like, it had my chest like, it was like, it tore through the muscle and it was just lodged in there. And I didn't realize it was there. You couldn't move then because it was in you. I couldn't move like the upper part. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so everybody's getting out of the vehicle, it's on fire. And holy, and holy crap, uh, I'm a 50 cal machine gunner and I have 3,000 rounds of ammunition linked, ammo, right in between my legs in there. And this vehicle's on fire. So it's only a matter of time before this ammo starts cooking off, they call it. So it became this, you know, oh, it was, it was crazy, you know, because you get out of the vehicle. I was the last one to get out of the vehicle. Um, and I got out of the vehicle and I got out on the cliff side, right? Just because I don't know, daylight's there. That's where the door was. I went out and there's that cliff. And so I like turned really tight and I went to take a step. And I dropped about a foot. I just like went, I felt like I went to my knee. And I looked down and I was looking at the bottom of my foot. Because the, the whole the whole lower half of my leg had just snapped completely. I was looking at the bottom of my boot and my heel was gone. I could see like inside my, it was, I was like, oh my God. So I just went like, I couldn't use my leg. So I stood up. I was like, okay, just don't even, don't even think about it. You, you cannot let this get to you right now. There's nobody here. 
everybody's in shock. Everybody's headed towards the second vehicle, right? To safety. That's where the CCP was at the time. You know, just get to the nearest vehicle, get all the casualties together, and let's figure it out. Because they're still shooting at us. You know, they were shooting um, RPGs and, you know, probably AKs or some kind of a small arms, some kind of a rifle. I put my head up and I mean, I only weigh 140 pounds, 145 pounds, but I have so much gear on. I have all my gear on, my water, my ammunition, all of this stuff. I, I, it just felt like I weighed a million pounds. And so I start to hop on my one good leg back towards the second vehicle. And we usually travel about 50 meters space in between. That way, if one vehicle gets hit, it's just one vehicle. You know, they, they can't disable two vehicles with one explosion. I'm on this mad dash to hop back to the second vehicle. And I can see a couple of the guys getting there from my truck. And I'm like, oh, man, I just got to get there, you know. And it just seemed like a, a mile away. And I'm hopping and I'm hopping. And I'm starting to get lightheaded. I'm starting to lose strength and consciousness because I was losing so much blood. And the adrenaline will only take it so far, you know. And I could feel myself kind of slipping, uh, I think because of the blood loss and how fast my heart was pounding. I basically collapsed about halfway. And I don't even know how I had it, but I had my machine gun with me, my, my, my regular machine gun that I had up there with me. I had just instinctively grabbed my weapon with me and I took it with me. So I'm hopping with this big machine gun. It's, it, it's rendered useless because of the explosion. It doesn't even work. But I'm just in, in instinct mode. We hop, or I hop about halfway, I collapse. And I'm like, this is it, man. Uh, I'm gonna die right here. And before I really had a chance to even finish that thought, I get yanked. And his name was Sergeant Stably. And I wanna say he was in the second or third vehicle. I think the third vehicle. He had worked his way up to the second vehicle. And he was making sure that everybody got back. And he saw me. So he sprinted out to me, grabbed me by my, it's called a toe strap. And it's for this very reason. You know, it's this handle on the back of your back of your, your, your vest. And he just grabbed me and just started dragging me those, those last 25, 30, 30 meters. Um, and then that's when I realized that my back was really messed up too. He kind of put me over in the ditch and he's like, here, just sit here. And we were foot to foot, all eight of us. So it was... I'm sitting this way with my legs out, and then the guy next to me, his legs are this way. And all eight of us in the ditch just waiting for something. And so I'm finally like, ah, and I lean back, and I can only go like so far. And I'm like, ah, my adrenaline's wearing off. Um, and I'm like, Finley, I'm like, what's wrong with my back? And he's like, oh my God, dude, you got a huge piece of metal sticking in your, sticking out of your back. And so they couldn't just pull it out, I guess, right. you know? And I can't really hear anything. I mean, my, my eardrums are completely blown out. I can't really hear anything. It was like a dream, you know, it was just like this weird dream that um, was happening. Uh, thank God I was surrounded by amazing soldiers. Our, our medic, he was incredible. I think he was like in the fifth vehicle and he made his way up to that, that second vehicle like that. He was there applying tourniquets doing what he could to get everybody ready to move out because we weren't really sure what was gonna happen. We were stuck on this cliff. So what they did was the very last vehicle, they were able to back it up and turn it around. And so they got 
all the engine to that back vehicle. It took about an hour and a half to get everybody back there, loaded up, and then down to a spot where a helicopter could land, you know, safely enough, because we were in this canyon, and then to get us out of there. I was the last person to get to that vehicle. And so by the time we got to the vehicle, there was no room for me inside the vehicle. So I'm like, well, I got to go. I'm not going to stay here. Sergeant Knight, I'll never forget this, Sergeant Knight, and I'm still really good friends with him. The front of every Humvee has Constantine wire, like it's razor wire, right? Strapped to the front in case we need to throw up a checkpoint. He unstrapped that real quick, threw it off the edge of the cliff, and, and said, get up, get up on the hood of the vehicle. Hold on to those, those straps that you would tie the Constantine wire on. So I'm like this. I get up there, and the hood of the Humvee is like 200 degrees. Oh, my gosh. It's burning. I'm like, ah, ah. I'm like, I can't sit on this. He's like, you have to. I said, I can't. He takes off his bulletproof vest and lays it. He lays it on the hood so I can sit on there. And he jumps up on there with me and holds me there while his ass is burning. <laughs> And bullets are still flying. And he took off his bulletproof vest. And this is a guy that had been deployed before. So he knew he knew what to do in these situations. And he didn't hesitate. Just like Sergeant Stabley didn't hesitate to come in and drag me out of harm's way. Um, so all that happened within the course of probably two and a half hours from the time we took the first contact to the time that they loaded us up on the helicopter. And then away we went. And I remember being on the helicopter and looking over and Brian, I saw Brian and I saw the other half of him, which he looked great. The, the left side, and it, it wasn't funny, but looking back on it, that was when they started pumping us full of morphine and we were holding hands. And I remember talking to him, like it was just, we were both, the drugs were kicking in and it was like, dude, this is it. This is it, you know, like, uh, I, I mean, I thought that half of us weren't going to make it. I didn't know if I was going to make it. And then you just, you kind of just go to sleep and you wake up at the next spot, which for me was Jalalabad. It was like a field station. They had to stop to stabilize us. Um, I woke up and I was on this table completely naked. And I looked down and I saw my foot. I was like, ah, oh, man, they had pulled that. They had pulled the piece of metal out of my back. The adrenaline's gone. And so I'm feeling tremendous pain at this point. I still can't hear. So it's again like this weird dream. And then they hit you with the morphine again. And then I woke up at Camp Naray, which is where we originally rolled out from. And I saw a lot of familiar faces. They didn't even take us off the helicopter. All it was was a quick stop to grab some of the guys' gear because they, we weren't sure if we were going to come back or not. And then we were going to take off for Bagram, the main uh, air base there. So it's morphine, I'm out again, and then I wake up in Bagram, and that was when we got the news about my roommate, Jacob Lowell. He was the gunner in the third vehicle, and he, he was KIA while all this was going on. He was laying down suppressive fire to the guys that were shooting us across the canyon, because the, the second vehicle couldn't even shoot that high. It was like straight up. So he was able to shoot at them, but they were shooting straight down on him. And so he ended up taking a bullet right through the, the soft spot, right through, you know, just like that. And um, 
he was my roommate in Italy for almost a year. So we, we had become really close. And so we're in Bagram and they're, they're, they're getting ready to, to get us on a medevac back to Germany. So everybody found out about him and it was, you know, it was heartbreaking. Because uh, it, it always works out this way. It's always the guys that, it's always the best of us. You know, you're always, you're instantly like, damn, man, why couldn't it have been me or anybody else? Like, he was literally the best soldier, you know, in our whole company. He was one of two privates who earned their expert infantry badge. He was this super dedicated uh, guy to fitness, to everything that we were doing, you know, just on another level, you know. So it was just weird to hear that he was the one that that they got to. So it was it was really hard. Everybody was really close to him, but there's nothing you can do. Before they before they loaded us on the, the transport to head back to Germany. They rolled us all, it was, it was seven of us or, or eight of us, I want to say, that were in the vehicle that got hurt. They rolled us all out to the tarmac so we could watch them load the flag-draped coffin onto the big bird that was going to head back to the States. But, I mean, we sat there and watched them load coffin after casket, after coffin, after casket. And finally, it was like, oh, there's Lowell. Never really got to say goodbye to him or anything like that, but... He, yeah, he was, he was very, he was very important to all of us and he still is. Um, I ended up naming my son Lowell uh, after him. Yeah, he was a great guy. He was uh, a big personality. He was a big guy. He, uh, they call him Steak. He was just a really funny guy. And there's not a day, day goes by that I don't think about him or that I'm grateful for him because without his actions, everybody in that first vehicle would be dead. Because they would have just kept hitting us with RPGs. The whole vehicle ended up burning to the ground. There was nothing left of it. Um, so he saved all of our lives. And he's the reason I was able to have this chapter in my life after my injury. Very blessed. Very blessed. But he was my roommate. Where was your, la- your leg amputated? When did that happen? Yeah. So um, initially they tried to save my leg. So I got hurt June 2nd and then July 19th. So just a month or so later, they ended up having to amputate it because there was no heel. They were going to end up having to fuse my leg. So I basically have a club foot for the rest of my leg. That they made the choice to amputate. And I had some, I had some really severe uh, injuries with my neck and my back with that piece of shrapnel that I'm, which that in a way are were more serious in the beginning than my leg. I mean, once they amputated my leg, it was they were able to contain it and I could start the healing process. But it took a lot longer for my neck and my back to to heal. So I still have to do a lot of rehab to, to keep up on that. That was the next question I was gonna ask. They still bother you then? Yeah, they do. And that's always gonna be there. It's just like anybody in life. If, if you do something hard enough, long enough. Or you have a traumatic experience where you blow your knee out or a sports injury, it always kind of bothers you. Obviously, this is a little bit more traumatic because my body is just consumed by shrapnel. I have just hundreds and hundreds of pieces everywhere, and they're constantly working their way out. Um, so I'm constantly off of my prosthetics, you know. So I'm I'm about half and half in a wheelchair and on my prosthetics. What did you do once you got out of the military? So I was very fortunate. 
to be able to go down to San Antonio. Uh, San Antonio, Texas is where they, they had this brand new facility. And I was able to go down there, meet other guys with amputations and burns and kind of feed off of them and stay motivated to start my new life because they told me as soon as I was getting ready to medically retire from the army, going through rehabilitation, they said, you cannot go back to the same job in the army. Uh, you will have to reclass and do a different training for a different job. And I said, no, thanks. I'll just get out, you know, um, I'll just transition out. And so during that transition process, I was in the mindset of proving to myself that I could still do things. I mean, within the first year of, of being hurt, I, I went down to White Sands. I did the Baton Death March. That's 26 miles in the desert. I did that like four months after I got my prosthetic. Um, I ran the Army 10 miler that year. I took part in like seven or eight 5K races. I won a few of them too. No big deal. But <laughs> And so I started to develop a sense of I got something else going now, you know, because like I've stated before, I, I just, I really like to work. I like to stay busy with whatever I'm doing. And so the, the rehab was great for me. Um, I enjoyed it. I was able to push myself every day. Um, and I had a goal, which was to get back up walking. And then it was to get running. And then it was to play sports, to get back on a skateboard, to get back on a snowboard, to get back into boxing, to get back to everything I used to do now that I'm um, disabled basically is what I'm telling myself I'm like man you know you're you're disabled now that that's what you are and that, that was hard that was a hard pill to swallow because there's nothing you can do when you have an injury like this sometimes that's the hardest part is having no control but having that rehabilitation and this new journey where I'm able to I'm able to work towards something and and I was scared though because I knew that I was getting out of the army now I, I literally just joined and I just joined the army less than a few years, just a few years ago. You know, I mean, it was such a short period of time from joining to training to Italy, to Afghanistan, boom, you're done. You're getting out. You have all these issues and you have to go back to your old life. And I didn't want to leave rehabilitation. I wanted to stay, you know, th there came a point where I was going to rehab and Major Campbell, he was my therapist, him and Troy Hopkins, great guys, no nonsense. They would ride you hard every day because they wanted you to succeed. They wanted you to get up sooner than later. But I realized that, oh man, I'm doing really good and they're going to get rid of me soon. He'd start saying things like, hey, what are you doing here, Clark? You know, shouldn't you be going to the VA appointments and on your way out? And I'm like, ah, oh, man, you know, I don't have anywhere to go. I was planning on making a career out of the army and now that is gone. That's completely gone now. I had to accept the transition out. And so I moved back. I moved back to Washington. And guess what? My dad's back in prison. When I got back, so let's see, I was 26 or 27 at this point. Or no, wait, I was, yeah, 26 or 27, I guess, 2007. The guy that I was living with, Jesse, who I told you about, who had the kids and everything, he's passed away at this point. He has OD'd. Um, a lot has changed. A bunch of my friends are gone, OD'd, or living on the streets, or locked up with my dad. 
what I did was I got a hold of a couple of friends that I knew. Their name their names Adam and Dee Dee, and they're a great couple. I've known them forever. And I said, hey, can I just come and stay with you for a while? And they were like, yeah, without we don't we don't have any room for you, but sure. They had like a brand new baby, Ethan, but they didn't hesitate. What he did was he sheetrocked part of the garage out and made a little apartment for me. I showed up, I had like just nothing really, just my stuff that I had in rehab. All the stuff I had in the army, like all that stuff was gone. I never got any of that stuff back. None of it. Here I was starting again. And so I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was getting a check every month. I, I'm this veteran guy now who is retired. Or like, oh, you're retired, man. Like, oh, how cool. You don't have to work anymore. And uh, this and that. And, and, and I lived I lived with Adam and Dee Dee. And I kind of just became part of their life. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was playing disc golf a lot. The, the Frisbees kind of took up a lot of my time. I was playing tournaments. I was just trying to stay focused on something. And then my dad was set to get out of prison soon. And he was going to have to be in a halfway house for about six months before he was able to, to get out on his own. So my idea was when he gets out, I want to have a place and I want him to come and live with me. I want to be able to change his life, to give him a chance to really turn it around now. Because at this point, him and my stepmom have fizzled out. That life has taken its toll on their relationship, drugs and jail and all that is it's too much. They're not together anymore. So I know when he gets out, he's going to be on his own. And so I'm like, so that, that was my new plan. You know, I want to have, and of course I want a relationship with my dad, you know, like my mom still lives in Florida. She's still out in Florida. Um, and I haven't seen her still since I got injured. Uh, apparently she was at Walter Reed. I was at Walter Reed for like a week, but I was so drugged up and heavily sedated. I don't, I don't really remember any of it. You know, I don't remember any of it. And so the next time I saw her was years later down in Florida. So, you know, I, I said, you know, this is a new chance for me. It's a new ch it'll be a new chance for my dad. So I decided to try to be more active in his recovery and his future. I, I rented a place and I got, my, I got my stuff together. I had a roommate of, of mine, he was an old army buddy, and he was transitioning out of the military, he was stationed at Fort Lewis. So he, I, I rented him a room, so we were kind of living together. And I'm like, hey, my dad gets out soon. He's gonna he's gonna be coming and living with me. So when he does, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to move out, you know. And so the day came, they signed him out of the halfway house. I went up, drove him down to his parole office. Uh, I met his parole officer. I signed all the stuff because I was gonna now be responsible for him for like a year until he is off. The books and he was able to go and do his own thing or whatever and so and i told him it, it, it was just this different dynamic now it's like okay it's like this is my kid and i have to lay down the ground rules listen drugs cannot come in this house people that do drugs cannot come in this house if you start doing drugs you have to leave i said i said you can do whatever you want but you can't do it here right this was going well for a while and during this time maybe this a year or two, year and a half, I had joined the, it's a softball team and it's made up exclusively of uh, wounded veterans. 
And, and this is back when they were first putting it together. And I was going to the Seattle VA and my prosthetist was like, hey, Nick, you play baseball, right? Like, I was like, yeah, yeah. He goes, they're putting this team together and they're doing like a sports camp in Arizona. He goes, would you like to go down and try out for it? I was like, yes, yes, something else, anything. You know, because I had nothing. I, I had nothing, just Frisbees. I went down there and I met Dave. He was the guy that was trying to create this team. And I played, they did like a little thing. It was like a one-time deal. And then I came home and I was like, all right, that was cool. A few weeks later, he calls me back and he's like, hey, do you want to do that again? And then it started to become like every weekend. So like I started flying all over the country and I was doing all these softball events. And then it became amputee kids camps. And then it became VFW, American Legion, corporate sponsor events. I just went to play softball with these guys. And then all of a sudden I'm telling my story, not like this. It, it was always a post-injury, watered-down version of right. my story. But but needless to say, I had gone from that to this without even knowing it. You know, I, I would get off the softball field. Dave was great. He would put together these, these teams that we would play against, local firefighters and police, first responders, local people that were, you know, active in their community. And it was just such a good feeling because here I was again involved in something else. And we are doing really good work and I'm able to play ball, which is like my favorite thing in the world is to play ball. And so I would travel, go do all these events and I'd come back and my dad was kind of taking care of the house while I was gone. And so I'm traveling and I do this and I meet a lovely lady on one of my travels and we ended up, we ended up hitting it off and she lived, she lived in Washington. And so we start dating and, you know, I start bringing her around and introduce her to my dad and all that. And, you know, I, I know for sure that, that this is going to be the woman that I'm with forever. You know, I, I want to marry this, this girl. And so it was very early in our relationship. And I remember one day I, I was like packing for a trip and I went up to grab some laundry out of the dryer and I saw it and it was a bag of, it was a bag of little white stuff. I don't know exactly what it was, but I knew, I knew what it was. I knew what it was. And, and so that night my dad came home and I flipped out on it, man. I really lost it. You know, I lost it. Uh, because I was so let down. I was so disappointed and I wasn't going to go back on my word. I was so adamant about him. I'm like, you need to leave now. Mm. I said, I don't, even, I don't even care. I said, you know, I said, oh, I wasn't mine. A friend, I said, I told you. Don't bring people in this house to do drugs. You know, I will not have it part of my life ever again. Well, if that's the way you want it, so that's what happened. And uh, he moved out, and our relationship kind of kind of died off. Um, I continued to travel. Me and my wife got married in 2015. We had our first child the following year, and our second child the following year. Growing up thinking that I would have a happy family and I would be like a dad and a husband that like has a, a job and a regular life and all this. It was, it was impossible because I never saw that ever growing up. You know, that was, didn't exist to me. There's never any stability. And so. Do you have to pinch yourself sometimes? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm That's very so grateful. Cool. Yeah. 
the hardest part of life, I think, sometimes is having to tell people that you can't have them, you can't have them in your life anymore because they're just not acting the right way. And you just can't have that kind of energy around you or your your kids and your wife. It's like I'm like, I need you to be a grandpa and a father-in-law. And, and until you can do that, I just can't have a relationship with you. And so my life was really going uphill, you know, I just doing so great, you know, because I'm taking advantage of every opportunity that's coming to me, traveling with the team, I'm networking, I'm meeting all these different people and I'm taking advantage of all these situations. Uh, me and my wife ended up, I met a lady in Cooperstown, New York, home of the Baseball Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. through, the team, through the team, playing an event there. Loved it so much. I said, hey, why don't we move out there? Let's just, there's nothing holding us to Washington. So we bought a house in Cooperstown, New York, and we lived there for two years. And we decided we didn't like the winters there. So we were going to move somewhere else. So we sold our house. We moved down to North Carolina. That's where we are now. Bought a house here. We actually, last year, we attempted to move back to Washington, but it was during the pandemic and our contract through our building contractor fell through. So we ended up buying another house in North Carolina after we sold the first house. So we're still in North Carolina and things have been going great for me. I, in the last couple of years, I have, I mean, I started an acting career. My yeah, flavor. I wanted yeah. to mention that, Nick. Tell me about this poster behind you. Yeah, so this is uh, Unsolved Mysteries. Maybe you've heard of it. A uh, pretty popular show. They refired it. I think last year, the year before. I don't know if you've seen any of the, any of the new episodes on Netflix. I did not even know. I have Netflix, but I did not know that that had been revamped. If you're a fan of the original show with Robert Stack. Yes, I remember. You'll love it. Much higher production. Um, it's a little different. So what happened was I had been in a couple of things. I, when we were in Cooperstown, and I'm just a very impulsive guy. So they had this open casting call in Cooperstown for a horror movie in the local newspaper hey would anybody want to be an extra it was a mary shelley movie it was about the the beginning of frankenstein and it was this independent film all woman film company i was like oh that sounds cool so i i wrote her a letter an email i said i said yeah yeah i attached the picture i said yeah i'll do it I'll, I'll show up so she got right back to me she's like yes we'd love to have you show up at hyde hall at midnight and expect to be here for like three hours or whatever and so I show up and Hyde Hall is like this famous mansion in Cooperstown. And it's like hundreds of years old. And this is where they were going to film the scene for this horror movie. I, I'm basically just an extra in the background, but that was my first role. From there, my old neighbor, he was a paratrooper, veteran, and he's now an actor and a producer and a writer. And we were talking one day in the, in the driveway and he was like, man, he goes, you got a good look. He goes, you talk really well. You're very well-spoken. He goes, with your leg and the veteran thing, he goes, you have a very you have a very dynamic niche. If you wanted to go into certain fields, how would you like to maybe look at doing some acting stuff? And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll say, I'll say no to nothing if it, if it sounds cool. So he introduced me to this lady, and she's a Hollywood agent. And... I ended up signing with her. Um, so, so far I have, I did the Netflix thing. I flew out to Detroit 
and I was there for like a week and I did, it's called Lady on the Lake. It's uh, volume two. I think it's episode four or five. Oh, it is, am, it is still yeah. on Netflix. I can still. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I play a cop. I play a Detroit cop in that. And then last year I got my big break and I landed a feature role. At, it's my first speaking role. And I play an FBI agent in a movie called Good Egg. And it's set to release this summer. And it's got a couple of big names in it. It's got uh, Yara Martinez. She's from Bull. She's the girl from Bull. And Joel, um, I can't pronounce his last name, but he's from The Amazing Mrs. Maisel. So they just threw me in with these guys. And I just fake it till I make it. I show up. I'm like, hey, I'm supposed to be here. Just I'm going to approach this like I approach Breaking Rat in, in Alaska or uh, doing concrete in Seattle or whatever. That's what I'm doing now. I just, I'm, all my free time, I'm teaching myself how to become a thespian. So that's what I'm doing currently. What are your goals for the future? Do you want to write a book? It sounds like you have a book in you. Yeah, I think the book doesn't happen for a while. I think until my kids are at least in college or out of college. Yeah, it takes a little bit of time. <laughs> yeah, because I, like I feel like the best is yet to come. I really do. And whenever I hear stories about like actors or, or just people in general that came from, you hear their backstory and you're like, how in the hell did they become a successful businessman or an actress or a yeah. basketball player or whatever, right? And it's because they never gave up. They never stopped. They took advantage of every opportunity. You know, and, and sometimes life is extremely hard for me with my injuries and the people that I've, lost and the stuff I had to go through during my life but I, I'm just very fortunate and very lucky that I've always been a, a glass half full guy and without the bad you can't have the good so like everything that I've gone through has led me to where I'm headed and I wouldn't be where I am now without all this terrible stuff that I've had to go because I wouldn't see the world in the same light I wouldn't see people the same way you know, who, who knows what kind of a person I'd be if I would have just had it easy or, or who knows, you know, I don't even know. There's just, there's so many different ways that it could have gone differently. But, um, you know, luckily I do have good people in my life that have always steered me, you know, to do what I knew was right for me. Barring a couple of people that I've kind of just had to say, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, <laughs> because it's always gotten me ahead. It's always gotten me to where I want to be, you know, so I'm going to continue to do that. I'm going to continue to do what I want to do. Is there somewhere we can find you on social media? Um, well, yeah, I have an IMDB. You can find me on IMDB and my actor's name is Nick Freeland. Nick what? Freeland, F-R-E-E-L-A-N-D, one word. Why that's, did you change your last name? That's my middle name. Freeland is my middle oh, name. Oh, all right. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Rather than going with Nick Clark, which is a very common name, and right. there's actually a couple of actors and a couple of writers who already have that, that name. Yeah, so, so you'd have to stick in an initial or whatever. It's just easier to do that. Okay. I'm at Facebook at uh, Nicholas Freeland Clark. And soon I should have either an Instagram or one of these other things. I'm not too hip with the social media, but I'm trying. 
it's a big but, pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but life is going great for me now and I couldn't be happy. I have one last question for you, Nick. What does America mean to you? Um, I think, I think it's going to sound cliche, but America is 100% about opportunities. And that's no matter what you are, no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've been through, there's still always opportunities for you if you're willing to work hard and you're willing to push the naysayers away. That's what America is. Thank you so much for sharing your American story with us. Absolutely, Tina. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of We the People, Our American Story podcast. Be sure to subscribe. You can go to www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. Find your favorite podcast platform on the top right-hand corner and subscribe. Next week, my guest will be John and Joshua Nicholson, two brothers who joined the military to fight and defend for our country. We the People, Our American Story, the podcast for Americans who love America.